not everybody in the world gets picked up off the floor by Muhammad Ali. <laughs> but I, if, if I'm asking if you want some underwear, we're pretty close. <laughs> we're there. Thank you for tuning in to the 23rd episode of the ElToro.com podcast. I am David Stadler, here with our sound engineer, Jeremy Ficklin, and my co-host, Chris McConnell. Hello. He may or may not be the illegitimate son of Mitch McConnell. We aren't sure. Nobody's verified that. Is that bad or good? May. Maybe. He might be. Maybe. Depending on who I talk to. Depending on who you talk to. <laughs> I mean, if you, gotta, if you gotta do it, you gotta do it. It's a fun name. So, today, we have a very special guest with us. We have Tori Merton McClure, who has decided to join us today, who has been so willing to share a little bit of our time with us. It is my privilege. Do you, because I'm, I'm from the South. My mother calls, I'm David Thomas Stadler. I'm David Thomas. Um, but I'm so used to using the string of three names. Is that proper form? It, it makes no difference to me. The students okay. at Spalding uh, University, where I'm the president, they, they call me President Tory. President Tory. Which I kind of, you know, that's when they're being formal. Otherwise, it's, got a it's nice just ring Tory. To it. Um, and I was given a, a speech for the um, American Philosophical Society on mm -hmm. sort of polar exploration in the North Pole. And I pointed out that if you go to the wilderness with someone who has three names, you are not going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Robert Falkland Scott. I mean, there's a whole series of people with three names leading folks into the wilderness and you, yeah, they don't come back. So do you keep that close to the vest when you're going out with an expedition team? Yeah, pretty much. Haven't shared that with anyone. Interesting. What is the success rate of people with one word as a name? Oh, I'm pretty sure Cher would rock it. Cher? <laughs> Cher Prince? could make it. Yeah. She'd, if Prince she'd were around, I could see him yep. really doing it. Literally, y'all, we are 30 seconds into this, and I'm off the rails. This is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. So... Tori Merton McClure is the president of Spalding University. She's an athlete and a world-renowned explorer. In addition to this, Tori has worked as the chaplain for the Boston City Hospital. While in Louisville, she has run a homeless shelter for women and children, been a policy advisor to the mayor, and worked with none other than Muhammad Ali during the formation of the Muhammad Ali Center. She has more abbreviations at the end of her name than you can shake a stick at. So I have kind of formed a little bit of a timeline here to help bring our listeners up to speed. Tori attended Louisville Collegiate School and graduated in 1981. Now, that is a high school for people that are not from Louisville, um, so just FYI. She has a degree in psychology from Smith College. She spent the summer of 86 in East Africa with the Maasai. Hopefully, we might be able to talk about your leopard hunt a little bit later. In 88, she was the first American and first female to reach the summit of Louis Nunatak in the Antarctic. <laughs> because she obviously didn't have enough on her plate at the time when she was, uh, you know, scaling mountains in Antarctica. She also received her Master of Divinity, or earned her Master of Divinity from Harvard in 1989. In 89, she was also the first American and first female to ski to the geographic South Pole. Um, she received her Juris Doctorate from the University of Louisville. She has also received a Master's in Fine Arts in Writing from Spalding. Um, and you may know her as the first female to row across the Atlantic Ocean. She has made that journey to, or almost once and then officially the second time around. So 1998 and 1999. So, Tori, you are a badass. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. Um, and we are very humbled to have you here in the office today. 
Um, you know, you're probably one of the most well-rounded people that we've had, you know, coming onto this show. So once again, cannot thank you enough for sharing a little bit of time. So we've got two wines today. Uh, we have an Encore Pinot Noir uh, by Heritage Vineyards from 2017. Um, I think this one's all about the fruit. And I taste a little bit of strawberry, maybe a little bit of citrus in there. But, you know, that, that could just be the booze talking right now. Um, you know, we, we all made the note of we could taste a little bit of the oak to it. I think this is kind of very reminiscent of a Mayomi. Um, I believe we've had a Mayomi on the podcast before. So uh, go out, buy a bottle of Encore uh, Pinot Noir. Um, and for the record, we are not sponsored by Encore Wines but we could be mm-hmm. so heritage vineyards if you're listening out there looking for a sponsorship now we also have a spanish white in the office with us today it is a frontonio telescopio macabeo garancha blanca say what there's a lot of words on that no in spain the, more, the more names the better yeah, it's kind of like a car. If you've got a bunch of stuff out on the back of the car, it must be a cooler car because it's got all those tags on it. Right. Right. So with this one, it's it's a dry white, and I don't see a lot of Spanish whites, period. So I dug it, picked it up. I like it a lot. Once again, I think we're carrying on that citrus note uh, in the white here, and for the life of me, I can't figure out what else I'm tasting, and maybe that's just the booze talking. But mm-hmm. Tori, I mean, you might you might have a little bit more to to say on this one. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a great critic of um, wines. I would say they're good. Nice, I like it. I do I do the same judging style. It's good. It's pretty good. It's the first white Garnacha I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. As our listeners will attest, we tend to speak a lot about process. Uh, We talk a lot about timing, talk a lot about taking calculated risks. Uh, But you've got a really, really, really diverse portfolio of experience, and you obviously have a voracious appetite for knowledge. So from an educational standpoint, what influences have led you down such a diverse path? Oh, well, you know, from where I'm sitting, I would say I've been going over, I've been going on a straight line over very different terrain. And that um, that sense of, okay, I was an undergraduate in college, was pre-med, had a friend who committed suicide who was also pre-med, didn't even know this person very well, but it's like, you know what, I I want a life that's going to be fuller. If I want to be a physician, I'm going to be a very good physician, and that allows time for nothing else. And I wanted to be more well-rounded. I wanted to have broader experiences than that. So I ventured, I went from doing a, a you know, undergraduate degree in, uh, I was at Smith College, very privileged. They didn't have a pre-med major because that would be, uh, that would be professional studies. <laughs> they didn't do that. Okay. And um, so I had a, a degree in psychology, although now it would be called neuroscience. It was more physiological psychology. I, I studied rat brains a lot. And everything I learned then has been now proven to be obsolete. But that sense of, of preparation and that anyone that's successful in whatever endeavor is willing to do their homework. They're willing to prepare. They're willing to get serious about whatever it is they're doing. And so I would, I would dive headfirst into 
trying to help some marginalized populations. Typically, that was what drew me. I grew up with a brother who's developmentally disabled, and so I always had a sense of if I could just be bigger or smarter or stronger or faster, I could help folks who were being oppressed who shouldn't be. Now, I studied in institutions that were classic white privilege. I mean, even Louisville Collegiate School, white yeah. privilege. Um, Smith College, white privilege. Harvard University, big time, capital W, capital privilege. Oh, yeah. no, not that. Um, no. Then I went to law school at UofL. Doesn't really count as white privilege. But mm-hmm. And now I'm the president at Spalding University. But I choose to be at Spalding because we are more about social mobility than we are about promoting privilege. But it's still about doing your homework. It's still about being willing to do the preparation. I um, I w- really had a great um, moment when I was invited to do a speech with John Grunsfeld, who was the chief scientist for NASA. And it was for the National Outdoor Leadership School, pretty pretty straightforward crowd, and, and somebody shouted out, we were asked to speak together. Now, I know John, John knows me, but we're not close enough to like share the podium and figure out how to do the back and forth. If I had one moment in my life on video, I wish I had that one, because we were a comedy routine. <laughs> and someone said, can you tell us about a time you really effed up only they didn't say f and i looked at john john looked at me we both sort of shrugged our shoulders because like 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 no and then i walked to the podium and i was like well there was this time i put this rowboat in the ocean thinking i could actually <laughs> row it to the other side that's kind of effing up right there isn't it and then they asked john about um preparation and how do you prepare for a mission and john talked about going th- it's like well i have to go through all the subroutines in my head i'm like john subroutines that's brilliant i'm gonna steal that <laughs> i keep calling them the voices <laughs> i keep going through the voices in my head and and but it's about planning for every contingency planning for every emergency you can imagine and you can imagine lots and lots of them and and um, just to correct one one thing i don't think anyone's still listening who cares I wasn't the first woman to row across the ocean. I was the first woman to do it alone, first American to do it alone. Um, there are only about three people in the world who care, but I just don't want to take credit for, for, for something that it was. I did it by myself. Um, that's Dave Stadler's bad, y'all. No, that's right. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, But the willingness to do your homework, I, se- I think, separates the really successful people from the marginally successful people. And um, you guys embody that of uh, wanting to figure out how to do something that no one else has figured out how to do. And you got to do some studies and you got to do some homework to do that well. Thank you. Oh, man. That's a, yeah, that's a very nice compliment. That's very nice. Especially coming from you. That's that's a, that's a little <laughs> weird. Yeah. So, I mean, this this breath was thrown ex- by that. Yeah. <laughs> you so rode across the ocean. <laughs> come on. So this breadth of experience at multiple institutions, you know, how do you think that's influenced your capacity to lead and manage at Spalding University? I mean, you've seen all ends of the spectrum. I mean, you look at, like you mentioned, the privileged association with Smith College and Harvard to, you know, the the Boston City Hospital was not, you know, it was not a pristine white floor hospital. No. Um, So, you know, how do you think that has influenced this capacity? Yeah, a couple of years after I left Boston City Hospital where I was a, a chaplain, the hospital was shut down for health code violations. Can you like hospitals have to be like there, there's some so, really messed up stuff for that to happen and I, I was um, speaking with our 
uh, human resources director at Spalding just this week and was talking about, yeah, I was a chaplain at 24. I must have been pathetic. I thought I was a genius. I thought I was great. Now I'm 55 going on 56, and I know a little more and have a little more understanding of the world. But at 24, I thought I understood everything. And, and when I look back and imagine what kind of chaplain I would have been, I was just really lucky to have great mentors. There was a, a patient at Boston City Hospital, a gentleman named Joe Curran, who had been a Catholic priest, and he was dying and really took me under his wing. I, I would take out, I had a clerical collar, and I, I lost the tab to it really early on in my chaplaincy and just replaced it with a three-by-five card. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I went into Probably. Joe's room, I would pull out the three-by-five card so he wouldn't know I was pretending to be a hospital chaplain. <laughs> and eventually he caught on because one of the nurses outed me, but he was so adept and astute and wise and he would say things like don't just do something sit there and that sense of when someone's really in need and in pain they don't need you to have all the answers they need you to be with them really truly all the way be with them and the person who taught me more about that than anyone was Muhammad Ali who was probably the most viscerally compassionate person I've ever met he exuded that sense of being with someone. He would look at you and it was like lightning going through you. He was really um, an extraordinary human being. Now, he did lots of things that were messed up and lots of things that we can judge poorly, but as a human being, he succeeded by just that sense of connecting with one person at a time and caring about one person at a time. And he made such a difference in my life of, um, you know, when I first really started spending time with Muhammad Ali. I was broken. I had failed to row the boat across the Atlantic. Um, I was really sort of messed up about the sense of, I, I told the world I was going to do this thing and I didn't succeed. And every couple of weeks, he, it was like he would come and give me a shot in the arm, like, kid, you got to get up. Like, you're on the canvas, you got to get up. <laughs> and, and eventually he said, Tori, you don't want to go through life as the woman who almost rowed across the ocean. And so... I probably would have gone back anyway, but having Muhammad Ali as my excuse was pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, that is crazy. You had, so you were essentially Rocky in this analogy, and he was like your, your Mickey. He was. You had, you had yeah. Muhammad Ali like, come on, Rock. You get up. Get in there. <laughs> get up. Get up and do this. Get up. And was, well, crazy. when he, uh, when, when, when I first really felt uh, that, that lightning bolt go through me, I was invited to you know, take a job working for the Muhammad Ali Center, which didn't yet exist here in Louisville, Kentucky. So, um, you know, asked to take a job to work on something that doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, sign me up. I'll do that. And and I'm invited to this luncheon with Muhammad and really important people like the governor and the mayor and, you know, this um, guy from the New York Times. And I do the, you know, family hold back thing. I'm standing back and it's kind of a bowling alley of a table, long, skinny table. And it, it turned out the only seat left open when everyone had seated themselves was directly across from Muhammad Ali. I sat down. He says, um, he's staring at me. And I'm looking around like, okay, what have I done? Is there something hanging out of my nose? Right, right. Is this bad? <laughs> and he says. How long has that been there? <laughs> he's like, were there times out there you wondered why am I here? And I, you know, and I'm like, I'm so glad he didn't ask why because he understood why. Yeah. Were there times out there you wondered why am I here? Like times out on the ocean that you wondered why am I here? 
And I looked and I said, Muhammad, were there times in the boxing ring when you wondered why am I here? And he just started to laugh. And there was this moment of recognition, that sense of, I know where you are. I know where you've been. And I know how to help. Right. You yeah. all kind of leveled with each other. Yeah. That's incredible. And here's, you kind of claim to be an introvert. I'm totally an introvert. Not a claim. Total. I mean, I, with uh, with these experiences that you've had, and I mean, yeah. just this this instance that you speak of right there, where you yeah. have this you know this moment with the greatest of all time. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I I, I guess I, I just kind of wonder how do you balance that, you know, I guess desire or need to be an introvert with such a public profile. You know, you. Yeah, so I really do feel like I took a wrong turn somewhere being an introvert and being a university president. I think there are lots of us who end up being university presidents, but because we did something bad in some former <laughs> life, you know, that we're with people all day, every day. Um, and being an introvert doesn't mean you can't engage in the public debate. It just means that you don't get energy from the public debate and that you've got to find some other way to recharge. And so, you know, it, it, it shouldn't surprise you that I... For exercise, I roller ski in in the local park here in, in Louisville. Now, no one roller skis. I roller ski because no one roller skis, right? No one's, You can't carry on a Wait. conversation with me. I'm faster than a walker. I'm slower than a jogger. I roller ski. <laughs> give me the – give me the. is that the visual? It's, it's, That's it's, the cross, it's, cro sort of it's cross-country skiing on wheels. I think I, not not roller blades because right. those go too fast and scare the bejesus out of me. Or I row in a yeah. single skull right? No one can get close to me. So it's perfect, perfect exercise for an introvert. And no one questions you for exercising. It's okay. It's, it's, it's socially acceptable to exercise in this time. Yeah. It's your but excuse to be alone. It's no my excuse to be alone. <laughs> totally. It's my excuse to be alone. Yeah. And it's also a thing that solely makes you stick out for you, you know, mm -hmm. and you seem like you're always drawn to sort of that sort of the, gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to row across the ocean. Yeah. You're going to be the person that's, that's yep. roller skiing in the park, man. Yep. Yeah. I like that though. I, I relate to that. Yeah. I would like to do that. That'd be fun. Yeah, I took I took <laughs> roller roller skiing to get in shape to uh, ski to the South Pole. Ah. See, and I'd be over here doing it for leisure, just <laughs> <laughs> figuring it out. We should go talk to those people roller skiing <laughs> in the side of the it's park. Yeah. They seem pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But could you imagine hearing that that reason? If I walked over to someone, what are you what are you doing? Are you roller skiing? And you'd be like, Yeah, because I'm I'm a roller ski at the South Pole. I'd probably think you were being a, like a bit of a smartass. I'd be like, Are you messing? Uh, Pretty much. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, that's okay. what people think. Yeah. Sure thing. Sure thing. And then here you are. Here you are. You know. Yeah, I uh, uh, I um, spent a summer in Alaska with the National Outdoor Leadership School. It was their semester in Alaska. It was a great experience. But we got trapped. Uh, in a really bad storm uh, on Silverthorne Call, which is right on the shoulder of Denali, one of the tallest mountains, well, the tallest mountain in, in uh, the North America. And, um, and we got bored. And so I let my friends cut my hair with a buck knife. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came I've home, been, I, I've been there. I've back, been. <laughs> back to civilization, I'm getting my hair cut at, I don't know, JCPenney, someplace pedestrian. <laughs> And yeah. the woman's cutting my hair, and I was like, uh, you know, I was stuck in a snowstorm on Silverthorne Court. We're at 13,000 feet, and I let a friend cut my hair with my with a buck knife. And she's like, yeah, right. <laughs> and you're like, and look, it looks better than the last time I saw you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, what is this, Roald Amundsen? Oh, yes, Roald Amundsen. Yeah. adventure is a result of bad planning. Oh, absolutely true. 
Okay. Absolutely true. Okay. Yeah. Roald Amundsen was like, he was, he and Ernest Shackleton are at the pinnacle of my, um, my category of folks who were willing to do, to do their homework. Shackleton might edge him out a little bit just because Shackleton could do his homework and he could lead men. There weren't any women on his expeditions, but he could lead men. And Shackleton lived. Shackleton lived. Amundsen did too. I thought he died trying to rescue some people. Well, he, he died later, but he, you know, all his major, his expeditions, he lived. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, he gave his life trying to save somebody else. I think that's okay. That's noble. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Interesting. Wow. Super cool. So how do you come up with a lot of the physical challenges that you've taken on and pursue? I mean, when you when you think of i mean I, i'm assuming you don't go into it just saying you know i'm looking for something really hard to do let me go through the list of things that are really physically challenging i mean actually if i'm really honest and i didn't i didn't have my aha moment of what sends me into the backcountry until i don't know maybe five or six years ago i was giving a speech i was invited to serve on the advisory board uh with rosalind carter on her mental health journalism fellows at the carter center like rosalind carter jimmy carter president carter and mrs carter and um i'm giving this speech and i'm like okay i have to understand that i went to the wilderness to ski to the south pole i went to the wilderness to row across the ocean because i was angry at civilization and that sense of if you really look at the world really open your eyes it is messed up now like it used to be easier to pretend it wasn't messed up now it's really messed up and i would try to fix it try to fix it try to fix it because we're smart people right and we care and we and we want good things for our our fellow human beings and i would just get angry at all the stuff that was so blatantly wrong and i couldn't fix it and i would just go to the wilderness to recover ski into the south pole or rowing a boat across the ocean and um it was in my my ultimately my successful trip of rowing across the ocean that i realized i can ski to the moon the Mm. world's still gonna be messed up i'm still gonna have to figure out how to do my part to make it better and and that sort of led me to a job at an unknown school in Louisville, Kentucky, because I could go to big name schools and prominent places, but I can make a difference here. I can make a real difference here. For sure. And I think you you have the resume to kind of support the fact that you have yeah. been making real differences all along the way. So, I mean, you could have you could have chosen like a, a thousand places to spend time, you know, kind of alone in the wilderness. Why Antarctica? Well, I wasn't alone on that trip. There were other folks on that particular expedition. But it was, you know, the the windows of opportunity open, and I would go through them. I was shaggy dog tail. I was climbing a mountain in Bolivia to get over spending a summer working with um, juvenile offenders in the woods. And my, my treat to myself was, okay, I spent the summer working with juvenile offenders. I've gotten really angry about how unjust their lives are. And, I, you know, I remember the sense of there was a, a – um, one of the folks in my life that summer said, would you write to me? And I said, yeah, just give me your address. He goes, I don't know my address. And I said, what do you mean you don't know your address? He goes, I'm a foster kid. Why would I know my address? Okay, I'm going to go climb a mountain to get over being angry. But I was climbing a mountain in Bolivia. And I ran into this French woman who said, hey, there's this 
expedition that's going to ski to the South Pole. You should think about going along. I thought, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. That's crazy. I would never do that. It got a hold of me and wouldn't let go of that idea of, well, could I? Would I? Could I? So um, I heard that they didn't want anyone under the age of 30 on the expedition, and I was like 24 at the time. And so I applied thinking there's no way they're going to let me do this. And I was bigger and stronger than any other woman who applied for the expedition. So they said yes, and off I went. And all the greatest things in my life have come from that risk calculation that says, they'll never take me, (laughs) or they'll never do this, or this will never be successful. Like right now, uh, my I wrote a book. It's named A Pearl in the Storm. And two really idealistic young people, younger than me, so they're maybe not that young, but they're younger than me, asked if they could have the rights to the book to do a musical. Now, in my brain, I'm going, well, the odds of a musical making it are astronomically small. So, yes, you have my permission. And they're like, no, no, really, what would it take? They're expecting me to charge them something. And I was like, I'm writing on a piece of paper. Okay, I'm a lawyer. You have my permission, Tori Murden McClure. And I send the (laughs) paper across the desk. They're pulling it off. It's amazing. And a musical's already a bold way to go, you know? Uh, well, it's... Your story could have sold alone, it, even as a play It's or not, yes. it's like, not oh, possible <laughs> for a musical about a woman alone in a rowboat to go anywhere, right? Saying nuss, saying yes has zero risk. Oh, they, had, they said, oh, on contraire. They're pulling it off. They're pulling it off. I can yeah. see it. We don't have to pay nearly as many actors and actresses it's, in this it's, one. It's, it's called Row, and they actually have nine actors. Whoa. And... Unbelievable! Like I, I am wired to be a critic. They're, they're, it's my life they have up there, right? I am wired to be. A, it's amazing. What's it like to see your life done as a play the first time? That has to be a. Once again, pro- you're probably prepared to be pretty critical. You're like, that's not how I would have done that. Or I was absolutely prepared to be critical, right. and I, I wasn't even going to go. My rowing sisters were going to go without me, because I'm like, yeah, I'm not going. It's I'm an introvert. I'm staying home. I'm not going. <laughs> And uh, John Patrick Shanley was at Spalding. He wrote the um, play Doubt. And better check, double check that. Um, and Joe Under the Volcano. I'm Bob culturally challenged, so I don't really know. Um, but I asked him a really self-indulgent question. I said, if someone was writing a musical about an escapade in your life, would you go or would you hide? He said, I'd go. And he essentially said, what else will you be doing that evening? And I was like, oh. Good point. So I went with my rowing sisters, prepared to be horrified, mm. and it's amazing. They've worked so hard. And every year or several times a year, someone asks for the film rights to the book, and I always say no. And I'm glad I have said no because the musical, they you have to work so much harder to make a musical oh, than yeah. you do to do a sort of a random made-for-TV movie. But... But, now let's but, say but Michael so Michael Bay comes around and is like, look, I got this explosive idea for you <laughs> sailing across the ocean. I think it'd be yeah. pretty, yeah, I'd be like, okay, yeah. okay, all right. You ran into some hurdles on your first go of it. Mm. Let's hear it. Let's hear it from from your mouth, from your head. Um, so uh, I was slated to row across the North Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the first hurdle, the grumpy, mean part of the ocean. Left from North Carolina destined for France. About eight days out, my boat capsized the first time and water got into my communications equipment. Salt water and really expensive electronics do not go together. Mm. Imagine salt water pouring into the studio right now. Very bad. And then, you know, a few months later, I was hit by a hurricane named Bonnie. 
And then a little while later was hit by a hurricane named Danielle. Now, Danielle hit me full force. It had 3,000 miles of fetch, which is the distance it has to build up waves and bad stuff to hurt you. And it was hit by Hurricane Danielle and was hit by both eye walls of the hurricane. And at the eye wall, the average wave height was 70 feet. The maximum theoretical wave height was 126 feet. The waves were really big. I um, capsized 11 times in one day. Um, and it was a bad day. A couple of my capsizes were end over end pitch poles. One capsize dislocated my shoulder. The next capsize put it back into place, which is my definition of a bad day. So when students at Spalding are telling me they're having a bad day, I'm like, wait a minute, is the room flipping upside down and filling up with water? No. Yeah. So in, in part of your recanting of these stories, you mentioned, you know, leaving your cabin at the, the stern's the rear, right? Mm-hmm. The stern of the boat. And you walked across the boat to the bow to grab your e-beacon. Right. Is that so right? It was the EPIRB, the Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon, um, which says, help! Um, and I didn't walk so much as crawl across the deck. Sure. It wasn't very far, but it's crawling. It's a 23-foot boat. People capsize in the Gulf of Mexico and don't make it out it, of there. It was 23 feet, boat. and I crawled across the deck to get the distress beacon, which I put on the bell bulkhead so I would have to make that crawl. I would have to make that walk. I would have to make that journey. If I had it in the cabin, I totally would have set it off. Oh. Having to go out into the storm, waves are washing over the boat. It's doing this really annoying submarine thing where the boat goes so far into the surface of the water that your ears pop. Bad day. When it comes back upright, I'm like, okay, I can't ask another human being to come out into the storm to get me. I came to the North Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat. I have to accept responsibility for that. So I tied the distress beacon to my life vest, crawled back across the deck, went back into the cabin with the distress beacon tied to my life vest, not setting it off with my other hand, hand playing games with myself like, okay, I need to understand when I would set it off. And I made up the story in my head, like, okay, if the boat smashes to pieces and I'm killed, that's okay. If the boat smashes to pieces and I'm drowned, that's okay. If I, if the boat smashes to pe- pieces and I find myself floating in the middle of the ocean with the EPIRB, will I set it off? Yes, I will. Why? I was barefoot and I didn't want to be eaten feet first. A bad day. <laughs> that would be a very bad day. A bad day. So that's that's an incredible answer. But the the you sense of that preparation of what you know, I don't want to bring somebody out into the storm. So I'm going to think of this one ridiculous reason why I would do the thing that I think is unconscionable, put someone else's life at risk for my own. So I make up this absurd story of I'm swimming in the middle of the North Atlantic with my EPIRB still attached. And 120-foot waves right. circling around you. Yeah. This normal day in Tori's life. Yeah. I mean. Makes what? boards of trustees seem easy. Yeah. Yes. I mean, anything you do in a given day is not that difficult. And this was this was during Hurricane Danielle. Hurricane Danielle. Bringing all of her past relationships. Right. It's right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> bad. It's bad. It's bad. Very bad. Now. There's not many people that can relate to something like that. You know what I mean? Getting caught in a hurricane. In a rowboat. Alone. (laughs) In the middle of the North Atlantic. Have you ever spoken with someone who can even slightly relate? Like, have you spoken to another person who's 
rode single-handedly across an ocean or maybe even like a sea captain who's been trapped in a hurricane before yeah so there are two stories i want to tell you one is uh captain lawrenson so after hurricane danielle passed uh, it was you know hurricane danielle hit me i think september the 5th september the 7th i'm still on the ocean right i've weathered hurricane danielle Another hurricane named Earl passed well north of my position, triggers a number of rogue waves. The boat capsizes four more times. I look out. I think the waves aren't nearly as big. The winds aren't nearly as strong. It's safe enough to ask for help. Set off my distress beacon about 4 o'clock in the morning. And about 1 o'clock that afternoon, a container ship comes by named the Independent Spirit. You can't make that stuff up. (laughs) And I'm picked up, and the captain has the, you know, ha- has the boat circle me three times to bring down the wave so it's safe enough to throw a cargo net over the side, and I just climb up completely undramatic rescue. They set the boat adrift, and Captain Lawrenson comes to meet me, and they take me to their sick bay, which was painted stark white, white sheets, white room. I've never felt so dirty in my whole life. Like, I haven't had a shower in a very long time. And I'm standing there trying not to touch anything. And there's a bunch of crewmen hanging around. And Captain Lawrenson comes through the door. And everybody else vaporizes. It's just me and the captain. And he says, the worst kind of cargo you can have is passengers. And the worst kind of passenger you can have is a female. And that was sort of the nature. And I was eating it up with a spoon. Because I wanted him to throw me in the bilge and just leave me there. Because I felt like a failure. That I had... I had Tried to do something I shouldn't have tried to do. I had been disrespectful to his ocean. But over the coming days, he sort of looked at the weather patterns that would have hit me. And he realized I had been through a hurricane and had not asked for help. And then I'd been through another storm and not asked for help. The night the independent spirit picked me up, they were hit by a force 10 gale that broke quarter-inch steel deck plates on the ship. I slept through it. The next morning is, you know, how, how'd you sleep? Well, I, slept, I slept great. And he looked at me like, you're making that up. I'm like, no, I slept great. And, and over time, before he brought me back to civilization, he and I were friends because he had a sense of I had not been disrespectful to his ocean. I had weathered the storm and been prepared to, 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 take, to take what I deserved of the beating that, you know, I, because I lost communications, I lost uh, my ability to surf the Gulf Stream. When I lost the ability to surf the Gulf Stream, the boat just stopped, and I, I was on the ocean too long. So wow. after they know your story and they see the boat that you climbed off of and know how big it was, I mean, they had to be like, you are the most badass person they have ever. Yeah, Captain Lawrenson thought I was being disrespectful, but then – the the other story I wanted to get yeah. to was um, as we're sailing into Philadelphia or motoring in because there weren't sails above board the Independent Spirit. We're sailing into port in Philadelphia, and I I look down and a, a motor vessel pulls up alongside and Gerard Debeville, a mentor who had rowed the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, and then sold the Pacific. He's sort of the Charles Lindbergh of France. Um, is standing on the deck and he comes out and he just gestures to me and he and he flips one finger over the other like indicating a pitch pole and like the question is did you pitch pole and I'm like yeah I did and he shrugs his shoulders like yeah well 
happen. There you are. And <laughs> only and in relation you two. Would yeah, get. <laughs> only yeah, only yeah. he and I would understand how pole. many capsizes it was. So he did this sort of tight fingered finger over finger, which meant capsize, and then he did a broader finger, finger over finger, which meant pitch pole. And I was like, yes, and yes, and and he shrugged his whole shoulders, and and I knew, I mean, I felt really low and um but the fact that Gerard came to meet me meant a lot it was sort of like Muhammad Ali swinging by every once in a while to give me a kick in the trousers like you got to get up Gerard being there said you know kid you weathered that storm you did the right thing you didn't put anybody at risk and I'm sorry you didn't make it but you deserved it and there's a quote that stuck with me that was important to George Washington, and it was from the play Cato. And it was an uh, important play at the time, and it was um, something along the lines of, um, we can't guarantee success, but we can deserve it. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that place where you do your homework, you deserve to succeed, you, you, know, you pay the price, um, you care the about work. the timing, but you put in the work. And it's like, you can't guarantee success, but you can deserve it. We can yeah. all deserve it. It was so kind of him to come. Wow. I got to go back, too, to when you were talking. I realized you said that about the hurricane, that you waited to actually set off your beacon until it was safe because you were still, you still right. had such like humility in that moment. You yeah. still thought, I don't want to put someone else in danger because I'm out here swimming in a hurricane. Or, or sorry, Paul, rowing right. in a hurricane <laughs> out here. I, I, there's no point else in me putting someone else in danger. When most people in that situation would probably be like, please get me out of here like a jet seat. You know what I mean? You waited, was it two days, essentially? Yeah, it was essentially two days. And and Captain Lawrenson was sort of, you know, in his world, he's just coming by picking up some woman out of a rowboat on a beautiful sunny day. And it wasn't until he sort of put the pieces together of the weather I had gone through mm. and that I hadn't set my distress beacon off at a time when he'd have to come through a hurricane to get me. I set it off on a beautiful sunny day. Mm. And the waves were still really high and really forceful because the hurricane had just been by. But and it would have probably been him. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So he, in that, in, as soon as he recognized that, his tenor toward me really changed. And um, and I was trying to explain to somebody that he and I became friends. He's like, well, how do you define friends in a sort of seven-day voyage? Well, he asked me if I needed clothing. And I was wearing the clothes I wore when I got out of the boat. And he goes, you know, if you need any underwear or anything, just let me know. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, I'm good. That's true. I feel pretty yeah. close. Yeah. If, I, if I'm asking if you want some underwear, we're pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're there. We're there. Yeah, he, you, you earned his respect is what happened. He, right. he realized what what you yeah. had waited for because yeah. like I said that's an amazing that's amazing humility in that moment and awareness of because uh, I, I am obviously not of, of strong mind like you because I picture myself flying down a, a hurricane wave or whatever I'm, I'm probably ejecting immediately you know yeah at, well, at that point I don't know I think if I think it, I I don't believe you I think you you know had, had oh you, had you don't you know me. <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> 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 I appreciate you though. So, you know, you were you were you were rescued by, you know, this you know, this shipping vessel. You yeah. come back to Louisville, you start working with Muhammad Ali and so there's a little bit of healthy ribbing that helps kinda, you know, get you back up on your feet a little bit. Walk me through, you know, the process before you go on a second expedition. You know, because 
there was there was there was a book I read on explorers and they talk about the different parts of an expedition like that and they talk about the funding and they talk about the planning and they talk about the training and the execution and then what the heck are you going to do with your life once you've achieved this monumental goal uh, well you know Roald Amundsen when he when he talks about if if you're having an adventure you've done something wrong you know all the all the folks I really respect who do expeditions um, they're explorers and an explorer does their homework and wants to they want to experience something they've never experienced they don't have to be in some place that's never been trodden before but they're really exploring life and humanity and who we are and what we're doing here um, the adventurers are the folks who just want to come and put it, pictures on Facebook and tell you what, how great they are and and um, it took me a long time to write the book. It took me about eight years to write my book because I kept putting it on the shelf and having that sense of, I got to get over the sense of achievement before I can write a book about it that's worth reading because there's nothing more boring than someone <laughs> writing a book telling you how great they are. <laughs> nothing. And, and the true Tory, you know, if I tell you, I could tell you a thousand stories about myself that are true that you would think, I don't even want to have lunch with this woman. And I could tell you a thousand stories about myself that are true that make you think I'm the goddess of vast empire. The true Tory is somewhere in the middle. And authenticity is what we're really hungry for in the world today because folks are either Certainly. talking the bad about somebody else or talking the good about themselves. But just being authentic. You can't be true because that takes too much time. <laughs> but you can be authentic. Yeah. Well put. I really like that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to put that one in my back pocket. I dig that. So, you know, is there a core tenant that you would, you know, you know, say this is why I was successful on my second attempt? You know, maybe it was the learning experiences from the first journey. Maybe it was, you know, an essential piece of preparation. Maybe it was an essential piece of planning, you know, something along those lines. Is there, I mean, you, you can take two. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, <laughs> I, I think the core tenant is the one that was the hardest for me to uh, take in, and that was the willingness to accept help. Um, accepting help from Muhammad Ali, accepting help from my friends. I mean, I, I had no money. There was a point when I was working on the second expedition where I was going to quit. Absolutely, just, you know, gonna quit. I have no money. My credit cards are all maxed out. I've taken a second mortgage on my home. There's no, there's no, there's no way to, there. no <laughs> way to, no way to make this happen. And I'm sitting at a coffee shop with my friends the morning I was like, I'm going to tell them this is over. I can't, I can't do this. And I went to Blue Dog Bakery here in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're getting ready to have coffee with the friends and the, um, uh, one of the owners says, how's fundraising going? And I said, ah, oh, not very well. And I went and sat down with my friends, getting ready to tell them it's over. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And, um, and the owners come over with a check for a thousand dollars. Wow. And that was the gap between the plywood and epoxy I needed to build the boat and making it happen. And I just, I mean, I burst into tears ran to the ladies' room. I don't think I came out for like a half an hour, it felt <laughs> like. Um, and and I'm not even sure I appropriately said thank you. It was just that sense of, okay, maybe, maybe I can pull this off. And since then, I mean, I came home, got married. My dearly beloved, um, who 
is bourbon royalty. Mm. He's the grandson <laughs> of Pappy Van Winkle. Um, he married me, and I, I mean, I was up to my eyeballs in debt from rowboats, and um, and have since worked my way out of debt. Thank you very much. But mm-hmm. but that sense of um, trying to do something and trying to achieve something and being true to your word. Um, young people today, particularly, need to see grown-ups who are true to their word, and say, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to be there for you. Whatever it is, um, it's important." It is. We're a lost generation. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just because you, you, do. you don't know how to use a compass. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Truth is, I probably don't. Well, we appreciate having very good guides in life like yourself. <laughs> Thank you for what you have done in this community and abroad. Thank you so much for coming and spending a little bit of time with us and sharing your story with our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning into the El Toro.com podcast. Yeah.